Hello and welcome to this episode of Trivia Album or Trivia Album. Trivia Album? Album? Trivia? Trivia Album. Trivia Album. I'm Stephen Cahoney and I'm joined with one of my good mates. Deco Lang. Deco Lang. <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do, each, each episode that we do, we talk about a specific album that we personally like, but I guess if it comes about that we might get people talking to us about any album that they want to kind of hear more about, give us a shout. Uh, the album that we've decided to do this episode is Incesticide by Nirvana. And uh, well, I guess Nirvana fans would probably know a lot about it, but it is one of those things that compared to like Nevermind, which everybody probably knows about, or even Bleach or In Utero, this one was actually released during our, it was actually before In Utero, from what, I, from what I can gather from the trivia and facts about it, was that I think the record label Geffen were actually waiting on Nirvana to finish In Utero, uh, or just even have some demo tracks done, and the proposed date went past, so I think Kurt kind of said that he'd agree to release a kind of a best of, but not in the way that traditional kind of best ofs were at the time, because obviously, wait, never mind, it was massive. But yeah, th- this album was essentially a compilation album, and it had like uh, singles like Sliver, um, it had demos, outtakes, cover versions, and radio broadcast recordings. The album was released on December 14th, 1992, and in Europe on the 15th of December, 1992. Or is that the other way around? Okay, I'll say that I was in uh, Europe in uh, the 14th and the 15th in the US, yeah. So yeah, and anything about that, Deco? Is there anything you want to you say about that? No, just to, just to um, you know, about the, um, all, all the songs, you know, they were all recorded, a lot of them recorded um, at Sub Pop. By 92, it was at, um, Nirvana, they were signed to Geffen. So um, Sub Pop basically just sold all the rights to those recordings back to Geffen just because um, Kurt wanted them released and uh, obviously they'd have a broader, much broader um, network of, uh, of uh, fans to listen to it when they were released by Geffen, so. Mm. It's just kind of a background onto how it sort of started to come about. Yeah, uh, I think like the band intended to release the material, as you were saying, I think they were going to call it Cash Cow, which, I mean, ironically, <laughs> that's that's what they were going to call it. Um, but yeah, as as Zach was said, Kurt Cobain, like he agreed to the release of the compilation. Um, once he was allowed to complete control, like have complete control over the album's artwork and pretty much the cover art was painted by Cobain. And you can see on the back, I think, of the album, the rubber duck is seen on the album's back cover. Uh, that belonged to Gobain. Like, I think he just took a picture of it. I don't know. But um, yeah, the front cover prominently displays a poppy that possibly fans and kind of critics have kind of said that it's hints at Cobain's struggle with heroin addiction. Now, you yeah. know, it's all speculation, our just mm-hmm. views, and, you know, we don't know what's fact. But yeah, but the, the interesting thing about it, um, the first pressings of the album contained linear notes um, written by Cobain, including a statement decrying homophobia, racism and misogyny. Uh, And what he said actually in it, and I actually have the CD or the vinyl somewhere, if any of you in any way hate homosexuals, people of different colour or women, please do this one favour for us. Leave us the fuck alone. Don't come to our shows and don't buy our records. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, at the time, 90s early 90s i mean Mm -hmm. it was a lot of as kind of during the history of the kind of music around that time it was a lot of kind of hair metal and it was a lot of rock stuff and it was the kind of jock kind of buzz was associated a lot with nirvana and i think with cobain when he when he was growing up apparently you know didn't get on with the jocks and the usual thing in in school so obviously it was that kind of ironic thing that obviously all the fans at the time perceived to be that kind of crowd. Um, it wasn't really for them. So like, I guess that statement that yeah. he put out was the fact that, you know, don't come to our shows if you're one of those people. But um, yeah, the album uh, it actually includes recordings by four different drummers. So there's Chad Channing, who was also on Bleach, uh, Dan Peters, uh, drummer from Mudhoney, 
popular Seattle band at the time as well. Dave Crover from the Melvins. And uh, of course, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl was on that as well. I just made a note then that there was, uh, what is it, one, two, three, six, six songs that were previously unreleased that only came out with Incesticide. The others were others were released on different compilations and uh, different different uh, albums, but we can we can go through that anyways later on. Yeah, uh, I, I guess we'll just look. At, so the first track is Dive. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite Nirvana tracks and especially, obviously, listening to Nevermind uh, and In Utero and all those kind of albums. Listening to Dive for the first time was actually a great surprise, especially with the, there's a lot of changes and a savage guitar solo in it as well. A lot of screaming, pretty difficult to sing. I know that from experience that it's, yeah, yeah, it's a I tough remember. one. It's yeah. a tough one to sing. Um, it, yeah, as, yeah, it was released as a B-side to Sliver in 1990, which is that kind of weird thing where, yeah, that, that, that was one of those kind of tracks that was kind of hit under a B-side at the time when tapes and vinyl were popular that you could actually buy singles physically. Uh, it was recorded in Madison, Wisconsin in Smart Studios on the 2nd of April, uh, 1990. Uh, the sessions for the planned second sub-pop album, which never happened. So apparently that was after Bleach um, that they yeah. were looking at doing that. Pretty much it was going to be Nevermind, but obviously they got signed to a different label. Uh, Chad Chatting is on drums. And Butch Vig is the producer of that, which I kind of found as a surprise because I thought, mm -hmm. was it Jack and Dino? Didn't he produce the Bleach album? I think it was Jack. Yeah, Jack and Dino. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anything on that, Deco, yourself? Uh, you, you said it as well. Dive, uh, when I heard it first, it fastly became one of my favorite Nirvana songs as well mm. um, to play and um, and to listen to. It's um Great song from start to finish. Like it's it's um it's it's uh, definitely up there. One of the one of the best. Yeah, I mean it's got the kind of even as I've kind of just written down a couple of things about it. Just even listen to the track mm. again over the past couple of days yeah. before we've done this episode. But it has like that kind of rolling bass, very very prominent, especially at the start. It sounds louder than actually anything in it right at the start. And then the thick dirty guitar coming in. Yeah, um, and yeah, the vocals. And as, as I've written down, vocals of agony that captured the still new grunge genre at the time. Now, that was back in 1990. Go. So, I mean, it was mm -hmm. well before even Nevermind and all that. But uh, just a little fact that in 2015, Dive was ranked at number six on Rolling Stone's No, no Apologies, uh, all 102 Nirvana songs ranked list, which is kind of, um, yeah, I, I'd put it up there in the top in the top 10, definitely. 100%. I was surprised yeah. that a lot of people kind of felt the same way about that. But yeah, that's kind of cool. One more one more little bit about it is that apparently Courtney Love's favorite song that Kurt wrote. So there you go. There you go. Lyrics-wise, um, I think Dive explores the human obsession with wanting to be chosen by another person in a relationship. Also giving that person whatever they want and doing what you need to do to be with them so i think it is a bit of an obsessioning and diving into that kind of obsession mm -hmm. wholeheartedly yeah. so yeah that's dive i know what you mean <laughs> savage so um the next song on the list was uh or next uh, song track track listing was uh was sliver so um as you mentioned um it was released in 1990 along with dive it was a b-side to dive People say that it's um, it's semi-autobiographical song, mm -hmm. you know, about being deserted by your parents, which uh, probably happened a lot with, with Kerber back in the days. Yeah. Um, so the, the Mudhoney drummer, Dan Peters, played drums on it. Mm -hmm. um, so Kurt said basically that he wanted to write the most ridiculous pop song he'd ever written. So apparently that, that's that's where he got the idea for, right. for Sliver. But um. It was recorded um, subgroup um, the band Tad were in recording in uh, in Seattle at the time, and Nirvana just gave them a call to see if they could um, they just call into the studio and record it like quick for you know quickly like you know and so they did. Took less than an hour. Kurt returned to the um, to the studio two weeks after that, recorded vocals and laid down a couple of additional guitar tracks. Um, the song was mixed. Um, you mentioned them before by by Jack and Dino as well. Mm. Kurtz, he was happy enough with it. He, he said it was done so fast and, you know, it was nice, good raw sound, like, you know, and they didn't believe they could capture um, capture that again by going to, to record it again, if you get me. Yeah. So um, so they, they, they released it as, as it was once it once it was recorded. 
I think it, it's one of the very few songs that Nirvana recorded before ever playing live. Mm. Um, because they, they, they went in and recorded that, and uh, they never they played it live before they before they actually uh, released it. As you said, Dan Peters played on the drums. Um, did they reckon that Kurt was happy with the chemistry with with with, with Peters? Like, but Chris said that Dan Peters was ever to join Nirvana and split up Mud Honey, they didn't mm. want to be responsible for that. Wow. <laughs> um yeah cool. yeah so um it's uh just a couple of other little bits about it um francis bean is on, in the video in the music video that they yep. released in 1903 and it has dave Grohl on drums in the video but it, it, it's not actually on the recording it's just dave drums on dave Grohl on the on the video hmm. but there is a massive mud honey poster behind dave Grohl, so maybe that's a, a nod to to uh, dan peters from from the recording yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's basically all that I have on that. It was March first, ninety four was the very last performance of it, and uh, the lyrics they seem fairly straightforward. You know, it's it's, it's a, a small child left with the grandparents while their parents went to a show. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you know, they had dinner, went outside, had ice cream, and fell asleep. You know, and uh, <laughs> some 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 believe that Kurt has been deliberately evasive. You know, he was choosing not to mention something significant that happened mm. that day. You know, and you know maybe his parents split, and just his mother came back and he was in his mother's arms, that kind of stuff. You know, so um. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's pretty much um, the info on on, the, on Sliver there. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, like especially you were talking about the music video. At uh, that's a really cool video, and it's the the iconic black and red jumper that he yeah. wore. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't know, ju- just as a little, a little, another little fact about that. Not many. Well, uh, some people mightn't even know it. Um, mm. Is that he got that red and black jumper in Northern Ireland? I think when they were playing, they were playing some gig. Oh wow. And it was off some some fan, and it was all kind of torn up and stuff after obviously Martian and stuff. And Cobain really mm. liked the jumper. I think the fan might have given it to him. Um, so yeah, Deadly. that's how it came about. And he ended up wearing that jumper for a good couple he's, of years. He's, yeah, he's iconic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So that's that's where it came about. I'd say he must have. Well, knowing him, he probably didn't buy another one. But that's yeah, that's the one that's in the mm. actual video, which is really cool. Deadly. Track three on Incesticide was Stain. This is it. This is a very strange track for me because I I find sometimes uncomfortable to listen to. I don't know why. It doesn't sound like Nirvana to me. Like yeah. it, it is a very strange. It's it's a very aggressive. And I know Cobain would be known for kind of guttural kind of singing and stuff. But it's just the kind of aggression in the track. Just just the thing about it that it was recorded in Seattle in Music Source Studios in September 1989, which is crazy. Like it was back around. Uh, actually, just saying here that it's actually the Blue EP recording sessions. So it was pretty yeah. much yeah the EP of that. And I think it was a promotional thing that they had done, the Blue EP. Um, it was only released in the UK. And I think it was an idea that they were going to actually have this for promotional purposes before they went on tour in Europe. So that mm. that's where that kind of EP came out of. Uh, Chad Channing is on drums for this and Steve Fisk produced it. The track was first released as a B-side on the Blue EP. Um, and yeah, it was only in the UK. And I think there was still probably presses of it hanging about, but there's not that many from what I've heard. So on, on the actual EP, just, just as a quick note that there's Blue, B-L-E-W, just in case people are wondering, uh, there's Love Buzz, uh, which everybody kind of knows from, from Bleach, and it's a Shock and Blue cover is the name of the band that, that actually wrote it. Uh, Being a Son is another one, and uh, Stain was the last track on it. Um, it, it. I have to say there's definitely one of my favourite, and I'll probably say it a lot, Stain one is one of my favourites, like top three solos in terms of Nirvana songs. Um, also, like even listen to it today, the song never seems to lose momentum, and at some points it almost sounds like the song is getting more frantic, uh, and no idea of how it's going to stop uh, until uh, obviously the abrupt ending, right where yeah. it cuts out, and you're kind of going, oh, you know, it's almost like you're out of breath. I don't know, I, like listen to it a couple of times today before we did this, it does sound like it's getting more and more frantic. And Cobain does obviously yeah. keep up with the singing. I don't know how he does it for that long, but yeah. So yeah, song lyrics um, uh, side towards Kurt, that if he is talking about himself being useless or a stain in his life, 
Um, mm-hmm. I found anyway. Many of his songs stayed how he hated his parents. Ironically, talking about Sliver as well. That's a pretty close thing. And how they yeah. didn't care or how he was useless. So let's say, for example, like Serve the Servants and even in his youth were other ones and Sliver. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, that's that's pretty much staying. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a sort of theme um, going through the years of uh, Kurt Sedaris, isn't it? Kind of yeah, like family life, abandonment and that kind of stuff. I mean, I think, you know, everybody obviously writes about kind of personal stuff, but I, I think it was a bit more upfront with Kurt because I don't think he could really hide the fact that how how that kind of family uh, childhood that he kind of had really did was the main, one of the main instruments that he had in writing songs. So I think obviously yeah. it does bleed out here and there. Um, it's not in all the songs, but especially in the yeah. early ones, like the Bleach kind mm-hmm. of era before Nevermind, I think that's where a lot of these songs, obviously, th- that's yeah. where they come from. So, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so you mentioned it just uh, there, it was on the Blue EP, Bin Sun. Yeah. So it was, as you said, it was released in November in 89 on the Blue EP in the UK. So mm. you, you've already mentioned that. So the, the actual second recording of this song um, is the one that's on Incesticide. So it's not the same version as the one that was recorded for the Blue EP. Wow, this uh, the the version on Inc- uh, that, that as you said, Chad Channing played drums on that, but the version on Incesticide it was recorded um, for the BBC program, the Evening Sessions, and it has Dave Grohl playing the drums on it. Cool. Um, so another little fact: it was performed first on October eighth, nineteen eighty nine, where Nirvana played Breed for the first time. Uh, wow. but it, it was it was called a modium at, at that. At that yeah. Time. Um, it was rehearsed for unplugged, but uh, it was cut from the set. Before the show, I think uh, that would have been that would have been a great addition to uh, yeah to the unplug show. We, I mean, when we play the unplug show, we play it like in the sounds. Yeah, you know, it's 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 one of those just poppy tunes you just can you know just um, bop along to. You know, it's it's a good song. So it's it's described as an instantly catchy song. You know, it, it's it's a song. It's about the plight you know of a girl whose parents would have preferred to have a boy. Mm. Apparently, you know, it kind of that's kind of obvious going through the going through the lyrics, like you know and. Mm. Some say some fans say songs. It's about Kurt's sister and the fact that their dad wants a boy instead of a girl for yeah. Kurt's sister. Not sure, not sure how true that is because already had a son with Kurt, like you know. But um, you know, it's kind of well known at this point in time. You know, Kurt was a big fan of the Beatles, John Lennon, and yeah. um, the uh, Stephen Fisk um, produced the first version of the song on the on the Blue EP. Said that it featured total Lennon harmonies. So there you go. Wow. So um, yeah, it's um, j- just one of those, you know, just from the second it hits that the first chord in the song is just instantly recognizable and just catches you, and you're just listening to the whole song. Yeah, you know? it kind of reminds me of—is it "Blister in the Sun"? Mm. That's what it kind of. Any time I hear it, it's just that very slight thing of. Yeah. I'm unsure which track comes in first, but yeah, it it always seems to be kind of. Uh, yeah, it's it's just instantly you you know it straight away. And it is, exactly, I would say yeah. if anybody like might be listening to this and hasn't heard the Incesticide album, you'd be very surprised how heavy it does get and then how very mm-hmm. poppy, which, for example, there's, there's a couple of more tracks on this album that do. That you thought being a son is poppy. There's another couple. Obviously, some of the yeah. covers as well. But uh, yeah, a blister in the sun. Every time I hear it, that's that's uh, <laughs> that. <laughs> I suppose it's, it's the nature of a nature of a compilation, isn't it? I suppose just mm. how different bands get over the years. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's, it's great song. Cool. Um, yeah, uh, track five on it is uh, "Turnaround." This version um, was recorded in uh, Maida Vale, uh, October twenty first, nineteen ninety. And it was for the like the hugely popular, and I still love listening back to some of the old catalog, the John Peel sessions back in 1990. Yeah. This was record recorded for the John Peel show, and the songs that were recorded for the actual John Peel show were "Turnaround," "Molly's Lips," and "Son of a Gun." So they were mm-hmm. the three songs. I still think that the sound actually so good, like they. I, I was surprised that they were actually sessions rather than actually full on kind of recording that they went fully true. It's it sounds fantastic. Uh, yeah. This this uh, this track uh, had Dave Grohl on it, and it was uh, Dale Dale Griffin was the producer of the show. Now it's that weird thing. I only found this out a couple of years after I had Incesticide. I never even realized. But I I always loved the kind of thumping drums and that little dirty mm-hmm. kind of ditty with the bass. And ju- just that kind of rolling kind of bass coming yeah. in, it's, mm-hmm. it, I, for me, it didn't sound like Nirvana. It's another one. 
obviously because it's a cover song originally by the one and yeah. only Devo. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, Devo. And you Devo. might kind of people might recognize Devo from the the absolutely savage and catchiest songs of all time, mm-hmm. Whip It. But I didn't realize that mm-hmm. Turnaround was actually the B side from the single wow. Whip It. That's maybe where Kurt might have heard it and wanted to do a cover of it. But I would say if you've never heard Turnaround, the original version, go and listen to it. And it almost sounds like they've done a dance version, uh, a <laughs> 80s, 70s, 80s dance version of the Nirvana version of Turnaround. But uh, yeah, I, I think Nirvana cool. kept pretty true, pretty true to the original, mm-hmm. but added that fuzzy bass and thumping drums with a little more aggression. Like there was a bit more uh, sinister kind of a twist on it rather than, you know, Devo yes. is very mm-hmm. kind of poppy electro kind of stuff. Yeah. But they kind of turned it a, a bit more acidic. That's how I'd put it. Yeah, Need the readies nice. for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so the next uh, the next cover, it was uh, it's Molly's Lips. Uh, that's a very well-known song to Nirvana fans, you know. It's... um. Just starts off with that really grungy guitar, so you know two chords in the whole song, and they make it sound like a, like like it sounds, you know, it's unreal. It was recorded yeah. by um, the Vaselines, you know. Anyone who's not familiar with um, Incesticide would have heard Unplugged, will have heard the Vaselines of the Jesus Don't Be for Sunbeam. Mm-hmm. So that was a Scottish band. So they recorded a live version of the song in um, in 1990 uh, in Portland, in Oregon. It was released as a split single version along with a song. By the fluid called Candy, which uh, I never knew about before. So right. it was just it was just um, two songs released on on a on a disc. Um, Nirvana's version of Molly's Lips and the Fluid by Candy, and it's obviously Candy's more um, or sorry, the Fluid's most f- famous song uh, because uh, it's it's related to um, to Nirvana, like you know. But um, Chad Channing, yeah, That's yeah, cool. no, I never I never knew that until until I was until I was looking up the information on it. But um, Chad Channing was uh, recorded the drums for the version. Uh, recorded in 1990. Um, in October, of, <clears throat> sorry, in October of the same year, uh, 1990, the version mm. uh, on Incesticide was recorded uh, during the same, um, sorry, during the John Peel sessions, the same as uh, Turnaround, uh, same session. And mm. uh, that was the first, actually the first recording session that Dave Grohl played on Nirvana. Yeah. It, re- it appeared on uh, an EP um, called the Hormoning EP. I think it was only released in Australia or, or in Japan or something like that. <clears throat> so that was in 92. So it came out on Incesticide just after that as well. And it was the very last uh, release by Nirvana on Sub Pop Records. And just, just going into the lyrics, obviously they're not cursed lyrics, um, but according to Eugene Kelly of the Vaselines, it's about an actress called Molly Weir. And presumably it relates mm. to her character on TV who wore very red lipstick and like had white face so that's her lips stood out so that's apparently what molly's lips is about there you go yeah all right i always wonder like Hmm. yeah it's one of those things that you know i just thought it was possibly maybe some kind of kind of a a a crush a high school kind of crush that he just you know the kind of Hmm. kids and innocence kind of thing you know yeah and I mean, as you were saying, the song mm. is one of the catchiest and easiest songs. G C the whole way G&C. through. Yeah. And then G, G again, yeah. And then G. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun mm. to play as it well. Is. Like that's it's one of those tracks where I mean, even oh, even yeah. acoustic yeah, or electric, yeah. it's, yeah, it's it's still it's a, a buffer track. I really like it. Uh the next track, track seven, mm. is Son of a Gun. Son of a Gun is the debut extended play single by Glasgow alternative rock group, The Vaselines, uh, which Deco was talking about there with The Unplugged and the song that Nirvana played. The title song of the EP came to a wider audience after, obviously, the Peel session, uh, and also Molly's Lips was released on the compilation Incesticide. And the only thing I would say is that just listening to the to the song, just, just now you could imagine, you know... Um, early Green Day releasing that type of song. You know, it's very, very sort of four chord, verse, chorus, verse kind of, yeah. you know, and then ju- just just a breakdown in the middle of just the same thing over again, you know, and back into a, back into a, you know, a bup, bup and down, that kind of thing in, in the verses. Great, great sort of, um, great yeah. sort of poppy, uh, poppy tune, like, and it's, it's, um, it's a great track. So um, the track after Son of a Gun is um, the very upbeat, um, not upbeat, I won't say upbeat, very, um, what's the word, very high tempo version of Polly compared to what was released on uh, Nevermind the year before. So Polly came out, it was in September in 91, 
And um, just that year, again, two months later, the 9th of November, was that maybe six weeks later? Um, this, this version was recorded in London again on those uh, John, uh, the BBC yeah. sessions, the live sessions. Um, and that's the version that's on the site. Not really sure why um, they recorded that way, to be honest, but it's, um, I think it sounds cool. It's, it's something different, like, you know, it's a different, different version of it. Do you think that was that they might have been bored? Because, mm. you know, it sounds like that getting through the song as such. Mm. But I, I think it definitely switches up the whole yeah. acoustic kind of appeal to like the exactly, kind of rawness yeah. of Polly. I think that kind of is more, there's a bit of a drive in it, but it, it's yeah, a bit no, more. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean, but they, they reckon that um, it had been earmarked to be on Bleach, but um, Kurt didn't think it was uh, consistent with the heavier sound. But when you think about it, if, if they released that version, then it probably it probably would have made bleach. Mm. Just uh, on the lyrics, it was uh, it was about yeah. um, abduction and rape of a fourteen year old girl in nineteen eighty seven. She was leaving a rock concert at the time, and uh, obviously it's written from the from the criminal's point of view. And um, it was originally going to be called Hitchhiker and then Cracker, but they eventually just called it um, Polly Polly in the end. There was an unreleased version. That was recorded during the John Peel sessions in 1989. Chad Channing was on the drums, and you, you know the drums on Never Mind. All it is is the cymbal mm. crash uh, on Polly, and that's actually Chad Channing's cymbal crashes that are on that. No way. Yeah, so that, that's Chad's. Uh, that's Chad's wow. contribution to to Never Mind. Does he there get royalties go. off that? Uh, I don't know. You you kind of hope so. Yeah. Because uh, even them them three or four different cymbal crashes he does on that one song could could uh, make him a lot of yeah. money. Imagine. That's cool. Yeah. That is cool, yeah. So yeah, that that's that's um no that, that, that's what I have on Polly. Cool man. That's that's really cool. Yeah, like speed wise, I think it's it's slightly it is very jarring compared to the acoustic rawness. That like I keep saying raw, but it is that thing with that acoustic one. Yeah. yeah and I think like the guitar wasn't really a great guitar. I think that's what kind of makes it as well. He got it from a pawn shop, I think. The, the original Polly I'm talking about, like, I know we're not mm -hmm. specifically yeah. talking about that. They also did that for something in the way where he used that guitar, very, mm. almost out of tune-ish kind of sound out of it. It's very yeah. bare kind of sound. Yeah. But then listening. <laughs> yeah. But then, but then like listening to this, like the up-tempo version, it, mm. it's, oh, it's pretty fast. And maybe it was the fact that Grohl actually played on this that he could do it that fast. Yeah, Might exactly. One of those things could have that been, he yeah. probably, yeah, probably is an exercise to kind of, you know, kind of get going in terms of what a, yeah, I yeah. don't know. No, that's random. Cool. No, no. Yeah. But yeah, um, so track nine of Incesticide is Beeswax. Mm -hmm. And um, this was recorded in, well, the first version was recorded in Seattle, Washington, um, in Reciprocal Recording Studios. Uh, the 23rd of January, 1990, 1988, not 1998. That'd be <laughs> scary. 1988. Yeah. Um, and this was actually part of the, Nirv the Nirvana's first studio demo tape. Um, so the songs on it, and obviously we're going to be talking about one or two of the, well, all of them in a bit, but the songs included on the first studio demo, ta demo tape were Beeswax, Downer, Mexican Seafood, Hairspray, Queen, and Aero Zeppelin. Uh, Dale Crover played drums on this and Jack and Dino uh, produced and engineered it, who obviously went on to do Bleach. And um, yes. yeah, this this was actually released as well. Beeswax, it was on an album released in in August 1991 uh, called Kill Rockstars. And it was by various artists on the Kill Rockstars label. So all of the bands on the record label performed on this album at the 1991 International Pop Underground Convention. That were, they're all from Olympia in the Seattle area. And the album was reissued on vinyl in limited quantities as a record store day exclusive in 2011. I've wow. never heard of it. Like I, yeah, it's one of those, I guess, that mm. kind of went in and out. Nobody heard it except the people that actually bought it. But yeah. it, in terms with the, the lyrics, it's, it's, a, it's another strange one. Like a lot of people say that Cobain kind of just threw the lyrics together and he tended to do that. Like he, there was no yeah. kind of, no thought going in of just if it sounded good, if he could sing it and it kind of hit a, a kind of a certain pronunciation or like singing wise, the scream, if it made the vocal like louder and more abrasive, then that's pretty much what he did the majority of the time. 
but from what I've gathered from fans and stuff have, have said that it uh, the song speaks, especially the lyrics, uh, speak of the objectification of women in society mm-hmm. and an obsession with sexuality that becomes stagnant and sterile. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, it's very that's hard apparently, to see Yeah. It is one of those things that, pe- you know, you could keep you could keep saying it's about anything, but I mean, yeah. that's the overall thing. And read if you do read through the lyrics, you will actually see there is bits and pieces of it on it. But I mean, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. Lot, a lot of it's just a bit of chaos in a package. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's pretty much that's beeswax. Batch of crazy. <laughs> Another thing about beeswax is um, it, it's it's a it's a funny song. Like it's um, you, you, you know Bush, um, you, you know Bush, obviously the band, yeah. the English band. So they're, it's well known that they're, you know, Gavin Ross is a big fan of Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, you know. Mm. You know, like uh, Swallowed follows the same sort of chord pattern during the verse as The Smells of Teen Spirit. But if you listen to, um, if you listen to Insect Kin by Bush, yeah, um, it has the exact same sort of, um, you know, you, you'd be hard to, to tell the two apart. You know, the beeswax part um, where it goes down, 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 yeah. down, down. That's the exact same as on Insect Kin as well. So wow, I didn't actually re yeah, I didn't actually realize that. Yeah, so um, yeah, so the next the next track is Downer. It was it was um as you mentioned it was it was um involved or not involved but included on that um very first demo tip in nineteen eighty eight. Dale Crover uh, plays the drums on the tracks as I assume he does on all of all of the ones mm. um, on that on that demo. Um, it was included on Incesticide because it was never initially released on Bleach. You know, obviously, if you get Bleach now, it, it downer is on it. Mm. It was only released on the CD version in 1990, so it was considered a B track, but still available commercially from 1990. And uh, oh, Kurt nice. thought, yeah, Kurt thought thought that it'd get more, um, it'd get more of, of a listen, like more people would hear it more on Incesticide than the one on Bleach. So that's that's why they included it on it. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So and uh, it was said to be Kurt's attempt at a political song, you know, because he mentions like radicals and uh, nuclear war. Yeah. You know, the, them, them radicals, they think the world is going to end and stuff and stuff like that. Like, so it's kind of uh, Kurt's foray into uh, his, his attempt at a political song. But um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, it follows, you know, that familiar sort of Nirvana sort of uh, way of, of uh, writing songs, you know, quiet, loud, quiet, sort of uh, the intro, the, like the, the, the bass, the, when the bass yeah. is in on the intro, it's just, um, Straight away, it's just like you know, you know exactly what song it is. It's just a, it's a, just just a great listen, like you know. So yeah, th- there's not much more information on Downer than that, man. To be honest. Yeah, that's that's cool, man. That that's I'm just actually thinking about what you were saying. So it's kind of yeah, <laughs> it's cool. Track eleven is Mexican seafood. It's a very strange name for a song, mm. and it always makes me hungry. And it's weird, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, it was released in Japan and appeared on the 1989 Teriyaki Asthma volume one compilation it was only in japan and australia very strange and it's a very strange song i it it never sits with me right i wouldn't say i don't like it it just never really i always kind of it's one of those songs that i always Hmm. tend to skip i think it's because obviously with downer and then with aero zeppelin coming up yeah that thing you know, I kind of tend to kind of jump past them. I don't know. It's more. It's I would. Mm. It wouldn't be one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, you know, it's it's not um one of those songs that uh, you instantly. If you if you said Mexican seafood to a Nirvana fan, you know, some might not even sort of register register the song. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it, it is a weird. One. There is a reason why I don't like it as well. I think I might have heard of this years ago, but I, when I was kind of looking up kind of stuff on the track, um, that apparently from what, what I've been reading, that some fans and people and whatever seem to believe that it is about a yeast infection. <laughs> right. <laughs> Most likely another one of Kurt's songs where he just throws a bunch of lyrics yeah. together. Yeah, the, if you do same. read some of the lyrics talking about crusty and kind of stuff i'm not even going to get into it yeah that's mexican seafood but yeah anything mexican you want seafood. to add uh no i think i think we'll leave it on that bombshell for that one cool <laughs> <laughs> um hairspray queen another kind of odd you know it's a good song but it's still mm. it's quite odd as well um, these kind of songs put you in the mind of um, like Milk It from Inutro you know it's a weird sort of structure song but has a really good you know like um, 
getting into it, it, it it's a bit, bit bit odd you know a bit strange but then once it gets into like chorus you know big banging chorus like you know it's uh yeah you know that, that that's when it gets that's when it gets good but hairspray queen apparently is considered to be the earliest song ever written by nirvana no um, way yeah apparently so yeah and um apparently when it was first performed live um a girl in the crowd approached kirk Cobain after the set asked if he made up the lyrics on the spot about her now that sounds quite weird like why would somebody go up and uh, say that to, to somebody yeah even so they reckon that that's if that is what happened that the first time kurt's lyrics were misinterpreted from what he intended which wouldn't be the first time now when, when just listening to what we're saying three things yeah his stuff can be easily um sort of misinterpreted you know um especially the ones as you say where he just really throws lyrics together like you know it might make sense to him like you know but um he's got a he had a, a strange but powerful mind on him yeah um i mean yeah go on, sorry no, I was just, just going to say it, it's it's um, fans, you know, it, it's it's said to be a reference to uh, the comings and goings of the hair metal generation, but um, yeah, it's it, it's hard to tell the you know with all the yelling and, and all the the mumbling <laughs> through the song, like you know. Uh, I just mentioned at the end, I said it earlier, but um, it's kind of like Milk It, it's uh, it is strange to start, but once once the bassline hits, you know, it, it just has you grips. Keep listening to the rest of it. It's yeah, it is. It is. It's another one. Like it is that thing where I think with Incesticide as a whole, it definitely gave a different kind of side to Nirvana. Yeah. Compared to obviously, never mind, and even in utero, I think obviously, never mind. Everybody knows it. Smells like Teen Spirit or Lithium or Poly or mm -hmm. any any of the songs off it. Most people would know them. But stuff like Hairspray Queen and mm -hmm. Mexican Seafood. Yes. They're tracks that. I still think they're they're I was like they're they're still pretty good tracks. I mean, you know, I think they all deserve to be on an album, and I think that's why Incesticide actually works perfectly because there is that little bit of in the footsteps of how Nirvana came about and the songwriting stuff that Kurt was doing. Whether it's hit or miss with a, with mm. a, a few people or a lot of people, I yeah. think there's still bangers on the actual album. Absolutely. For example, like Hairspray Queen, it's another one that's kind of just a bit off. But it's not yeah. bad. Mm -hmm. It's just really cool. No, exactly. Yeah. And do you know what? The, the only kind of way um, we kind of determine it, uh, not, not as bad, but odd, is because we're so used to the, the Bleach and Nevermind um, sort of style. You know, yeah. if, if it is the case that um, that Hairspray King Queen was the very first Nirvana song to ever be written, like, you know, obviously they went on and thought, you know, that they started writing songs like about a girl and, and blue and uh, paper cuts and the stuff that's on bleach, you know, and uh, they thought, mm. right, they were definitely more, more commercial for that time. Like, you know, was, but I still think they have their, they have their worth um, on, on the, on the compilation. Like there's probably people who would skip the earlier songs and jump right to the section of the, of, yeah. of the CD, you know. But it is there. That's the kind of cool yeah, thing about exactly, it. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's deadly. It's, they're always there. And uh, like, this is actually like we were talking about those kind of tracks that are a bit off. Mm -hmm. We'll just call it off because <laughs> they're they're not exactly not bad, but yeah. they're just yeah. There's some something kind of not in the kind of Nirvana lock, mm -hmm. airtight kind of sound that they had. Um, but one that one of my favorite Nirvana tracks is Aero yeah. Zeppelin, and it's not even what it's about. It's actually just the actual role of the kind of stuff in it mm. obviously as we've talked about earlier this was another one that was recorded in the reciprocal recording studio dale crover's on the drums for this as well the song actually is about aerosmith and led zeppelin <laughs> but it's not necessarily at them yeah. it's it's talking about those big bands and mm -hmm. um, it's mainly about the trendiness of most music as seen with the major fame of bands yes. like Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. So like in the 70s, especially with the stadium rock became a thing where PA systems were kind of a lot louder mm -hmm. and, you know, stuff was amplified to the max in the best way. Yeah, it's talking about that kind of getting their own jets and yeah. all that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's, all, it's all about that. There's one cool thing about it, and it's just something that popped into my head when I was listening to it again. Uh, you can actually hear the Aerosmith kind of influence around the 120 mark on okay. it. And it's a, this little roll and it sounds, it's a sweet emotion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you do know the song Sweet Emotion... Yeah. Uh, by Aerosmith, it's that kind of off tempo where the drums come in and it's hitting the kind of, is it the ride? It's hitting the ride. 
If you go to the 120 mark on Aero Zeppelin and listen to Sweet Emotion, okay. you'll hear yeah, yeah, the sweet. off bit after the intro. Mm-hmm. It's actually cool, but I'll just even, I, w- I want to actually talk, just in case, because a lot of people do tend to kind of talk about in terms of Cobain that, you know, he was always giving out and doing yes. all this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. I was actually reading up on the lyrics and I, I was reading the lyrics and these are some of the lyrics about it. Now, um, I'll just read it out. So, how a culture comes again, it's a plan of yesterday and you swear it's not a trend, doesn't matter anyway. They're only here to talk to friends, nothing new is every day. You could shit upon the stage. They'll be fans. They'll be fans. They'll be fans. <laughs> yeah. So all the kids will eat it up if it's packaged properly. Steal a sound and imitate. Keep a format equally. Not an ode, just the facts where our world is nowadays. And idea is what we lack. It doesn't matter anyways. <laughs> you might think, well, you know, at the time we were even talking about the kind of hair metal scene and all yeah. that. It's nothing really to do about that. I think misinterpret the kind of mm. what... Cobain actually used to talk about was that it wasn't about the actual bands. It yeah. was about that kind of, as he says, you could just shit upon the stage and there'd be fans. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Regardless. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, it seems to show that Kurt being angry at the rock scene in general and perhaps the lack of creativity, mm-hmm. like just about different music and different sounds and, you know, yeah. and think of the line, you could shit on the stage, there'll be fans. This <laughs> leads you to think, as he says, if it's packaged properly, people will buy into the concept, which, mm-hmm. I mean, back in what year was this? It was back in 88. And you could pretty much use that right now. Absolutely. Yeah. But Aero Zeppelin, I never, it was one of those things, the title never, never even, I never even no, caught on to it. Until same as. I realize, yeah, yeah. I would never have, uh, no, I would never have uh, copped out that it was Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin. But um, now that you, now that you mention it, yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, as you say, right up to today, it, it, it's um, same same thing. If it's packaged properly, you know, like, you know, just look at the Grammys that was on a few weeks ago, whatever. Beyonce winning what Grammy number, whatever, you know, for yeah. six lyrics per song, you know, and then you have yeah. the likes of Bohemian Rhapsody with, you know, it, but look, look. That's just people being smart at what to do, and it's it's not for us to you know it's not for us to be bitter about it. like you know it's um they're, yeah. they're they're doing what they do and they're doing it successfully. So you know, considering back in eighty eight, I wouldn't even can't even remember what age, what age would Kurt have been. He'd be, God, he'd be young enough anyway. But yeah, even talking about that mm. at the time, it just sounds relevant now as it was. Yeah, I think we'd be twenty one, twenty one in eighty eight. I think yeah, seven. You're the maths man, Zach. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> so yeah, but that that's, cool. that, that's a, it just sounds exactly the same as people ranting even 10 years after that, talking about boy bands mm. and kind of stuff like that. And then 10 years after, talking about like, I don't know, Miley Cyrus. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then 10 years after, you know, it just never changes. I know, I mean, yeah. the stuff, yeah. you know. But it, it's kind of cool. But yeah, there's that's Aero Zeppelin. Deadly. Um, so Big Long Now is the next uh, the next track on it. So um, great song. I, I really like Big Long Now. I think it's a great track. So we're kind of, we're kind of coming out of the we're coming out of the strange track and into two really good tracks to finish off the album. So it was recorded actually during the Bleach recording sessions between December '88 and mm. January '89, and uh, Chad Channing was the drummer uh, on the track that was released on Incesticide. Um, it was never released until until Incesticide. So <laughs> the song so, some believe the song appears to be about an alien encounter, but there's not really much to go by in relation to the lyrics. They were kind of just. This is quite strange here, but um, Chad Chad Channing he, he kind of revealed that um, Kurt Cobain he didn't know what the song was about himself. You know, just had the lyrics all thrown together. Chad Channing actually ended up providing Kurt with the title of the song. So he said that he didn't. Kurt told oh. him he didn't have a name for the song. So and then Chad Channing just randomly said three words while thinking about sort of how the song felt. Big long now. That was it. That's how they come up with the name of the song. Kurt was like, "Grant, we'll do that." <laughs> And um, wow. one very strange thing, in the same way, Chad actually provided the song title for About a Girl, which I was quite surprised about. Oh. Um, but um, some, yeah, uh, the, just just the final point yeah. about, um, some say it was about media. Um, due to the, the, the lyric, um, it said a number of times through the song, can we show our faces now? I don't think that is the case because, um, you know, the song was written in 88 and nobody really knew who they were at that time, you know, but maybe, maybe it just meant in, you know, in a general sense. 
So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, I think the That's most cool. um, the most surprising part about that is the fact um, you know you kind of just seen process that that, that Kurt kind of took in uh, just randomly throwing lyrics together, and then Chad Channing came along and named the song. You know. Quite, quite weird. Yeah, well, like, isn't that the kind of mm. revolving door kind of thing as such where you end up throwing enough stuff? That's another uh, thing that I'm saying. But yeah, you end up kind of throwing stuff at the wall that eventually mm. stick and people just take it for what it is, whether Cobain meant anything by it. But maybe that's where, because he heard Cobain singing about it and all that stuff, mm. maybe that's where the vocal, like the idea for yeah. the, the title came about. It's just, it's kind of cool. It's really cool. It is to cool see because that, I, yeah. I think, you know, because, um, you know, nowadays, like, you know, you people like singer songwriters, you know, that they wouldn't, you know, they, they kind of guard their their songs, like, you know, and, the, you know, what the, what the lyrics are about and they wouldn't let anybody change anything or, you know, that kind of, I think it was kind of cool that, you know, Kurt was kind of more into the music and just threw lyrics together and then just let his bandmates pick the song name, you know, until that, you know. Yeah. Cool. It yeah, works. Definitely works. You know, I don't really say that it no. doesn't. And I'm not saying you, but it, you know, just in general, Absolutely. like I mean, yeah. That's cool. I do I do remember something from Big Long Now that apparently like this was at the time when it was released, it was people were waiting for the next album after Nevermind. <laughs> and when people bought it, I don't think they were expecting it to be uh, like I don't yeah. know. I think it was just an extreme kind of difference <laughs> compared to In Bloom yeah, or exactly, yeah. you know Lithium. Obviously, there was no real major standout tracks in terms of catchiness mm -hmm. and the kind of number one in the Billboard charts kind of. Yeah, exactly. it. But I do remember the, um, there was an interview that I think it was Chris Novoselic said that one thing about it was that when somebody I don't know who who it was, it could have been a fan said it to him that when his mum looked at the actual inlay case of the the, the vinyl mm. that uh, she seen the name big long now and she obviously thought it was some kind of dirty kind yes, of tone to yeah, it yeah. and she ended up he ended up burning the oh, vinyl Christ. and uh novoselic told Cobain that and he just thought it was really funny and awesome <laughs> so it's like That's deadly. like but it, yeah, obviously, it because somebody, as as we were saying, somebody took that as it meant something else, and it was like it's not. It's just, yeah, blame Chad Channing for that. Absolutely, man. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, like yeah, geez, that was quick. So the last <laughs> track, track fifteen. Uh, I hope to do reissue this. I wonder, is there any extra tracks that might have been might have been on this that wasn't? Because um, I do know Jack and Dino had bits and pieces of other demos that he hasn't really maybe it did come out with with the lights yeah. out that box mm -hmm. set probably did come out with that but yeah I thought, you know even the likes of um you know you're right and uh you, you know you're right yeah. would have been would have been good on this i think and um yeah endless nameless you know at the end just kind of yeah milk it milk it um yeah, yeah i think milk, milk it i think probably would have been better served on incesticide than a neutral but anyway track 15 uh, was aneurysm tune uh, probably oh i love it absolutely it is one of these tracks where i don't know where it came about how cobain actually came up with this song it's a very i think it reminds me of um a beatles track i don't know i think it's even that kind of holding off the kind of palm muting in the come on over, mm -hmm. do the twist, mm -hmm. come on over, shoot the shit, all that kind of stuff. I think it's a very Beatles that if it was a very clean sound and if you could hear McCartney or Lennon singing it without the obviously the foul language. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's on it. But I think I think it just reminds me of, of a Beatles track, like the early mm -hmm. kind of stuff. I don't know why, but it just always reminds me. A very poppy, but obviously it's the yeah. sinister. No, no, I see, I see, where, I see where you're coming from with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the, the song was first recorded on the 1st of January, 1991, mm. uh, with Craig Montgomery producing. The song appeared as the B-side that smells like Teen Spirit. Um, even in his youth was on that oh, tune, um, yeah. single as well. And I remember actually getting that single and it was, yeah. Hearing Teen Spirit was, yeah, was yeah. brilliant to actually have it, stick it in the, in the CD player and the mm -hmm. tape deck. But then to hear aneurysm and even yeah. in his youth, 
I can't get over how those tracks were not on. I know, yeah, these. yeah, like, yeah. I, know, I, I had that same. Very I had that same like, single with, with those two B sides. It was unreal. I mean, the, like the yeah, the, the the crack with this with aneurysm was the song was recorded again on the 9th of November, nineteen ninety one, for Mark Goodyear's BBC session. This version was later released on Incesticide, so that's the one that we we can hear on Incesticide. And also, it was the first recording session with Dave Grohl on drums. What yeah, a session! What a session! There you go. Like, I mean, that's yeah, that's insane. So, as as we're saying, like, it's it, uh, yeah, where does aneurysm come from? Like, we do have a bit of information on this, which is kind of cool. So, aneurysm was the first of a half a dozen songs written by Cobain following his breakup with Toby Vale, um, a musician, <laughs> American musician. She's in Bikini Kill, I think is the name of it. Yeah, Bikini Kill is the name of the, the band that she's in, in um, November 1990. Cross described, um, so Cross was the guy that did the Heavier Than Heaven book. Oh, yes, yeah. He talked about this in, in the book, and uh, he described aneurysm as an attempt to win Vale back, unlike later songs like Drain You, which instead expressed his deep level of hurt. So I guess, I mean, it kind of doesn't really change in terms of... He, it's very out there yeah. now you know people are taking it for what they kind of perceive mm, as exactly. but kind of don't know what cobain actually said about all of these different songs that's the kind of weird thing about this like the only thing i could really find was about cross talking about mm -hmm. aneurysm there was nothing really else about it and people were kind of close to cobain did say that obviously the uh, the breakup with toby vale was that kind of thing you know it was it, it did kind of get at yeah. him for a for a for a while and he wrote a lot of songs and obviously then Drenu came out of that which instead expressed his level of hurt yes you know so but um yeah and the the other thing like even we're talking about the foul language uh shoot the shit beat beat me out of me uh the parts that you can hear like during the actual kind yes. of chorusy mm -hmm. riffy kind of parts uh cobain's lyrics for the song make fun of pop conventions and drug use rituals which i'd say he was getting his head wrecked at that stage absolutely yeah it was starting to pop up anyway, I'd say. I think it was that kind of being hip kind of buzz and he was pissed off. That's for sure, yeah. 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 So yeah. Anything to add in aneurysm? Um, like it's it's just a stop. No, no, nothing to add, just um it. the sheer joy we get when we when we play it live. <laughs> one of one of my favorites, hundred percent. I absolutely love doing yeah. that song. Deadly. Especially the build up yeah. parts. Like the little guitar bit where it kind of harmonizes mm -hmm. with the vocal doing the screaming part. Like yeah, it's it's yeah absolutely it's a, it's um it's, it's one of those you just uh you, you look for it on the on the playlist and when you're going to play it you know not that that really matters because the playlist goes out the window when you start anyway but yeah. <laughs> that's true so yeah um that's that's pretty much incesticide mm. by nirvana yeah. i think is there anything else to add i suppose maybe just um tell people anybody who give us your views if you want and you know um thanks a million for joining us if you haven't listened to incesticide in a while go and give it a listen and uh we'll be back with you again soon 